I think infrastructure plays a key role in all three dimensions, you know, of sustainable development, the economy, uh, the environment and the society. And as the world now seeks to meet these ambitious targets, such as the SDGs and the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, infrastructure is becoming more widely recognized as a critical asset class that can help support the energy transition. And infrastructure in itself shouldn't be viewed as an individual asset, but as part of an ecosystem with a portfolio of assets that collectively hold the great potential to deliver the, the three pillars of SDGs. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Experience Podcast for PwC on driving sustainable innovation. Sustainability has become a hot topic that is refocusing governments and companies to move away from enterprise value creation to share value creation. And this value creation tries to strike a balance between creating value for people, planet, and prosperity. Consequently, achieving sustainable development now has to be one that is green and inclusive. And to sustainably, countries require to invest heavily on physical and human assets. And of course, the physical assets is infrastructure. We all know the business of investing in infrastructure is one that has very high financing needs with our infrastructure fiscal gap in line running into trillions and we know infrastructure is important for creating socioeconomic prosperity improving standards of living for people and it has to be one that builds resilience for the planet and one that mitigates against climate change Therefore, financing infrastructure is an imperative. To discuss this, I am most privileged to welcome our guest speaker of the day, Mr. Chinua Azubike, that is the CEO of InfraCredit. You are welcome, Chinua. Thank you, Rukaya. It's a pleasure to be on, on this podcast. Okay. So we'd like to start by asking you to just briefly introduce your organization and what sustainability or ESG means to you. Thank you. So InfraCredit was established to solve the market gap as a specialized guarantee institution to provide long-term local currency credit enhancement through guarantees in order to enable infrastructure um, companies to raise uh, financing from the capital markets and thereby attract long-term investments from domestic pension funds and other institutional investors. Prior to InfraCredit's establishment, there was a market constraint in raising long-term financing for infrastructure, especially private sector-led infrastructure, and then getting the pension funds to actually allocate capital as domestic credit to the private sector to finance infrastructure. Most of the pension assets, which is currently around 12 trillion Naira, is heavily invested. Over 60% is invested in government debt securities. Not enough of it is being allocated to the productive sector of the economy. And so InfraCredit has mobilized, was established to do this. We are sponsored by the Nigerian Sovereign Investment Authority, alongside other highly rated DFIs. Garanko, who was a co-sponsor in establishing us, and we also have KFW Development Bank as, as a capital provider. We have um, Africa Finance Corporation, an equity investor, 
Infraco Africa as an equity investor and the um, Africa Development Bank as a tier two capital provider. Great. So like you mentioned earlier, one of the avenues you mobilize finance or help clients mobilize finances as capital market. It's seen as a good avenue for infrastructure financing and most economists will also agree that, like I said earlier, infrastructure is vital for having any thriving um, economy. Would you say there is a link between sustainability in financing infrastructure projects? And is the capital market in Nigeria favorable for this? If so, can you explain how? Yes. I think infrastructure plays a key role in all three dimensions, you know, of sustainable development, the economy, uh, the environment and the society. And as the world now seeks to meet these ambitious targets, such as the SDGs and the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, infrastructure is becoming more widely recognized as a critical asset class that can help support the energy transition. And infrastructure in itself shouldn't be viewed as an individual asset, but as part of an ecosystem with a portfolio of assets that collectively hold the great potential to deliver the, the three pillars of SDGs. And the capital market has an especially important role to play as the source of where we can access domestic capital, local currency financing. The tenor of local currency financing can be sourced in the capital market. Mm. And so therefore, it does have an important role to play. And with that as well, I think when we now begin to look at sustainability and impact, then we now begin to, and especially when we look at SDG-related infrastructure, I believe that smart use of public finance will need to come with much more private capital. Blended finance will be critical to attract private investment, especially where we're trying to finance SDG-related infrastructure that contain what we call hard to mitigate downside risks because of the perception. Because given the poverty rate in the country, we also know that some of these projects actually do carry a high perceived risk. Okay, thank you for that. Like you mentioned that there are three dimensions to sustainability. I mean, the issues range from climate change to tackling youth employment, issues of human rights to building circular economies. From your experience in structured finance, investment and sustainability, what would you say the market regards the most, the major material sustainability issues that business face? And how can we use that as a beachhead to gain more buying for sustainability in hard sell markets? Different institutions may also have different definitions of how they view sustainability or what some may even define as corporate social responsibility. But I think for us, we went through a process. Firstly, we had to refine our theory of change. And that's very important step in trying to create a, a lens through which you see the impact that you're looking to have in. And our theory of change, InfraCredit aims to first transform the debt capital market, increase infrastructure development in Nigeria, catalyze unlocking local currency finance, uh, which is mostly infrastructure, we support viable projects, but we intend to intervene in two ways. Alleviate financing bottlenecks and build investor understanding, improve intermediation, but ultimately drive economic growth 
an improved quality of people's lives. So we set out how we want to address this assess impact, both at the project level, at the market level, and then at the end user level. And to achieve that, we needed to put in a framework. And that framework enables us to begin to put in a monitoring, evaluation, and learning toolkit that we apply in evaluating the impact that we have. And so that is some work that has to take place within the institution and also should permeate into the culture of the institution. So it becomes less of a functional responsibility, but actually something that becomes more within your value system. And then it takes a bit more than normal business practice to transition or pivot into making sustainability a mainstream consideration when providing financing. And so I think it has to start from the leadership. It requires a level of shift in vision and leadership towards driving institutions to look in that direction. But importantly is the fact that I think that it's also good business practice. Because if we look at some of the potential benefits and current benefits that we see in accessing blended finance that can help to reduce or mitigate risk, like I had to mitigate the risks that are perceived on projects that have strong impact outcomes. Then you begin to actually impact positively on the environment while making profit as well. So, but it really requires a shift in commitment and philosophy for institutions. But I hope that by being able to demonstrate, so hopefully InfraCredit, given the approach we're taking, we can show a demonstration effect for the market to see that you can be focused on or begin to address impact and sustainability and climate issues and at the same time operate a successful business model. So I think those examples will be very useful to act as an incentive for others to follow. Perception obviously is a big issue where people feel that there's a perception, especially in less developed countries, that there are more priorities that you want to address and that taking on the additional cost or a burden of prioritizing sustainability could affect profitability. So that is a perception issue, but I think it's better addressed through examples ultimately. So I would like to reemphasize three very important things you said there about being an impact-driven and purposeful organization and truly embedding ESG into what you do, including your governance and risk management, and very importantly, that tone at the top. Now to just kind of take the last points you made about value creation and, and even maybe being more profitable if you imbibe you know, ESG. I mean, many people say that the focus on environment, social and governance might actually uh, make companies lose focus on profits. It's now a move from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, and you're trying to create that shared value. So how do you manage these multiple expectations from diverse stakeholders, you know, in driving ESG-related initiatives, and what advice do you have for others? This is a very good point because at the Infocredit, we do have a mix of investors. We have like the AFC, which is sort of more, you know, private sector led and also profit driven alongside being impactful, but also ensuring that they make a commercial return. And then we have the NSIA, which also has a social impact responsibility, but also wants capital protected. And then we have Infraco Africa, 
which is an impact investor, but all want to see sustainability. And so we do have the pension funds that buy the invest in the guaranteed instruments that we bring to market that want to ultimately see the impact that the investments have in creating jobs, supporting local economic growth, supporting gender inclusion. They would love to see that, but obviously are not willing to take some of the risks associated with making direct investments. So it's a, managing stakeholders involve a delicate balance. I think a degree of sort of influence or managing the relationships between different categories of, of stakeholders. I think firstly, we have a core mandate and we also try to demonstrate that we are not shifting or diverting away from the mandate of being able to provide access to long-term local currency finance for infrastructure to issue these guarantees in a profitable way and ensure that our portfolio are not risky and have a high probability of default. So that risk acceptance criteria is something that clearly we still need to maintain. But of course, you know that as you shift towards trying to be impactful, there is this question around how much more risk are you taking versus the reward you're looking for? Because when you measure reward in terms of impact adjusted returns versus, you know, risk adjusted returns, you have to balance this. And so we've aimed to maintain to a large extent our risk appetite, aim to continue to achieve commercially sustainable growth. But we are now engaging closely with donors, development partners, that are actually motivated to take on certain type of risks because their reward is more on the impact side than on the financial return. And what we propose to them is to blend by working closely with them in identifying projects that otherwise meet our criteria and their mm -hmm. criteria, and yeah. they're willing to share risk in financing these projects where they either come in to take a first loss on the capital structure or provide some kind of risk sharing that ensures that we do not mm. compromise on our commercial and risk acceptance criteria, but at the same time, because they are willing to absorb certain level of risks, we can price the deal, participate in supporting infrastructure. And an example could be, we started looking at solar mini grids, providing energy in rural areas. We're looking at a company that provides rural telephony in rural areas, um, a company that provides cold storage um, agro-coal storage infrastructure, solar-powered in peri-urban and some rural areas, and an aggregator that produces maize, with working with smallholder farmers, and is looking to scale up its storage infrastructure, uh, which is like cocoon bags that are movable and modular. Now, when you take it, these companies um, and you assess the type of business model that they operate versus your traditional 10 megawatt, 20 megawatt power plant with a PPA, right? A power purchase agreement that is to a counterparty that is, you know, satisfactory. And, and so either you have an NNPC signing a PPA with a power plant, which is one of the projects we financed, or a company providing power to commercial uptake in the urban area. So these are less risky yeah. type of projects, right? And then when you look at these ones, the reality is that when you look at the impact comparably, you find that these other projects are impacting significant amount of end users that it is solving job and poverty reduction challenges. It's solving significant problems we have with, for example, the, the cold storage, the post-harvest losses. However, a lot of these type of projects don't have sufficient data and performance history. And also, they have a perceived risk of high default because of the quality of the end users. Now, we are working with development partners to risk share. 
Because yeah. at the end of the day, when you look at the type of infrastructure that they're providing, it's about how you define infrastructure. Because infrastructure to these end users is essentiality mm. of service. And essentiality of service is, for example, a containerized solar powered storage service is infrastructure to the market women, to the smallholder farmers. It is critical, it's essential to them, but it may not be infrastructure in Lagos because we have access to energy and we have access to storage. And the same thing with the, with the solar mini grid in the rural area. So the definition of infrastructure begins to evolve when you look at what is essential service for um, the underserved and unserved market as it yeah. were and but naturally because they are underserved and even the unserved market is what represents what you call non-consumption because non-consumption is those who don't seem like they can access or afford a particular service so data doesn't exist on the ability to pay so this is why we're working closely with the development partners like fcdo like the Af uh, french development agency okay. and KFW, similar other development partners who are motivated to support these sort of projects but to blend leverage their own investments because yeah. on a singular basis their investments may not have the catalytic impact but yeah. working with structures financial structures that can create a capital structure whereby they take a first loss and catalyze private capital at the same time we build in a sustainable financing model into the, the project that ensures it can scale and you know these models are very replicable but importantly they can scale and ultimately the question for us and which is what we see from the data is that the infrastructure deficit at these levels ultimately run into hundreds of billions of naira so when we talk about the infrastructure deficit i think we should also not limit it entirely to roads power to the grid your traditional type of rail and all of those but you also need to look at the infrastructure that will be pulled in by the local economy and more importantly you know those on the set that contribute over 40 percent plus of the population i would say these are over 80 million nigerians that don't have access to this infrastructure and actually when you now look at the number they are actually quite a sizable amount of of, of end users but again they contribute a high risk profile uptake but then i think the capital structure we propose which we're working with development partners could really help to mainstream this type of infrastructure and, and address the perceptual risk of default. So again, this is moving from trying to make sure that we maintain our risk acceptance criteria. So we manage that with our stakeholders, but at the same time, risk share with other partnerships that we can bring in that can enable us to achieve our mutual goals, shared value, shared success ultimately. So this is really, I would say the sort of engineering that we need to manage as an institution. And I'm sure for many others, they probably go through similar type of um, questions, especially if you're set up on a commercial basis. Basis, absolutely. I mean, that's the beauty of sustainability. Once you put that lens of how do you include everyone, even no one behind, and looking at the different stakeholders, and of course, collaboration and the risk pooling is also important because everyone is looking is being purposeful here. So you often see that collaboration to, to really ensure you serve you know, the, the, the underserved. So now I would like to move to discuss specifically around climate. I mean, where hope is rounding up today and definitely I'm sure you too are looking forward to seeing the outcomes that will come out of that. And when you look at Africa in particular, we're in a very special 
category and zone of that just transition. So I mean, many people feel since we are not big emitters, we should actually be on that other side of receive of being helped to adapt to climate change. That certainly might cause long-term setback on ESG. Then there is, of course, a lot of skepticism that is leading to, you know, lack of corporate board support for ESG. According to the Financial Times, there is increasing buyout of publicly traded companies to avoid ESG scrutiny. How big of an impact and influence do you think these trends will have on sustainability? Do you think they have impacted sustainable investments, impact investing and infrastructure projects in, in particular? What, and what do you think the future would be as a result of this interplay? Thank you. Yeah, I think it's very evident that the world's climate future will increasingly depend on decisions made in developing economies. We all know Africa is vulnerable you know, to climate change. 30 of the world's 40 most vulnerable climate countries are in Africa, and yet we receive, like you rightly noted, less than 3% of, of global climate finance. So setting a just and fair transition would mean that we really need to, and I know that this has been discussed extensively from in COP26, it's really ensuring that these commitments get to the ground. They actually are drawn and funded and they begin to have impact in Africa. Now, how will this happen? Because we've had commitment given since over the past decade and, and we haven't really seen a lot of these commitments being utilized fully. And a lot of these, I think, has also had to do with the mechanism. I believe that the participation of domestic private intermediaries with boots on the ground will be very critical to expand this financing to get to the ground to finance projects in, in Africa. And I believe a lot of the skepticism or the constraints companies are facing is the cost, the perceived cost, and really the real cost that it will take to transition. And given the poverty rate, even if we took Nigeria as an example, you know, where the largest number of people without energy access in the world, uh, you know, it's, it's over 85 million Nigerians. And we also take into consideration we're also the poverty rate in the country. So when we begin to look at the, what the priority for the average Nigerian is under such circumstances, then it gives a good sense as to transitioning to net zero emissions and, and what transitional sources of energy should be fair for countries that also have gas, which the federal government has highlighted that gas will play a major role in transitioning energy yeah. um, in, in the country. So... We think that this goes fundamentally to how blended finance uh, will work and the strategies and approach to how linking these sources of funding to private capital and the role private capital will play in, in leveraging and catalyzing these sources of finance that have been committed to Africa. And they should take currency risk ultimately because, again, you know, committing money in dollars where revenues are, you know, are in Naira, it's not a realistic means of of, 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 of of funding a sustainable transition. So dollar-denominated financing, blending that financing with private capital, leverage the local currency debt capital markets and the local capital markets um, to scale. I think it's going to be very critical 
and intermediaries like InfoCredit, uh, where we believe we're very well placed to act as partners on the ground that can ag aggregate, um, originate, aggregate structure and blend capital to bring the pension funds in as um, investors, but taking yeah. the senior tranche so they're not taking high risk and then bring in the, the donor or the, the, the first loss capital coming from these commitments to come in and mobilize impact capital at, at a much larger scale. We believe it's very possible, especially from what we see in terms of the opportunities on ground. We just yeah. need to see capital come in, a, in an efficient and uh, predictable way. I think that's really the challenge we're having. And we do hope that through instruments like the Green Climate Fund, yeah. that institutions like ourselves can demonstrate how facilities like this can be mobilized to finance the type of projects that I talked about. So these are projects that are, have the potential to impact up to a million Nigerians if scaled up in an efficient way. So we think that the element exists. It's really how we're able to organize and implement. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, if we put up that opportunistic lens, that we can actually structure a lot of projects that we can tap into the climate funds that would be made available. I mean, South Africa was very smart with that and we saw how the developed countries galvanized support because they had a clear project with tangible outcomes and impact. But I mean, now it is what it is. Nigeria has made that pledge to be a net zero country by 2060. But the twist out of all this is that gas has emerged not so clean. U.S. government even pledging to cut down on methane, which warms up the planet, is it about 80 times more? So it will be interesting to see how Nigeria charts out their pathway to achieving that net zero transmission. So to now come down on how you feel all our climate pledges from the ratified Paris Agreement to this new net zero pledge by 2060. To what extent do you think all these will influence investment management and in particular infrastructure investment given that the key sectors affected are all uh, infrastructure related power from power to transport to industries as well. So over to you, Chinua. How do you think it's going to influence investment management. Thank you. So we also have to look at the impact of COVID in all of this and sort of the adverse economic impact that COVID ha has had, because that also sets the context for the appetite and the, the quantum of, of private capital that will play a critical role. If you remember, I think the government recently set an ambition to reduce poverty for or 100 million people by 2030. Whilst an ambitious target, it, I think what is important in all of these narratives is that they're depending heavily on the role of the private um, sector in bridging these deficits. And for us, I think what is clear is that the cost of achieving SDGs and, and the Paris Agreement given COVID will be greater. And as we engage with our partners, we, we're actually faced with certain questions which helped us to shape our clean energy transition roadmap. What are the options for generating a pathway that is aligned with Paris Agreement without compromising growth and development? How long will the infrared need to transition to an investment strategy and portfolio that is aligned with the Paris Agreement? 
and what role can we and our government partners play to accelerate a green transition in Nigeria's infrastructure investment? Because slow economic growth would not help to deliver a quicker energy transition. When we look at past energy transitions, it always suggests that the high economic growth and high energy demand is more conducive to transition to than, than a lower one. So affordability yeah. and accessibility will be key to ensuring that clean energy transitions are people-centered and, and inclusive. So we think that the private capital will have a very critical role to play. There needs to be an incentive to help crowding this capital to work alongside the government's aims to achieve this transition. I think if there is sufficient incentive, the private market can actually accelerate this transition much faster. And which takes me to the earlier point around we need to mobilize more blended finance. Blended finance will have an unprecedented role to play more than ever before in achieving carbon neutrality and, and net zero emissions targets that are set. So for us, we've set a target of, of 2050, and we've set out a plan of how we intend to strategically begin to identify aligned, we already conditionally aligned projects that we have transition plans set out in terms of how we begin to accelerate green and climate smart infrastructure in our portfolio and how we can achieve net zero. So it's part of our strategy, which is why we're, we're paying more deliberate attention to this. Um, so I wouldn't know for most other institutions how much priority they would play to this, but there should be an incentive. We believe that the incentive that can enable private sector, and these incentives can come with tax rebates. For example, if you are investing more in clean energy or you are a renewable energy company, what type of fiscal incentives can you get um, to drive that? So we know the challenges even with, with the tariffs for importing solar panels in the country, it's a challenge. I think government needs to pay particular attention to the fiscal incentives that they can put in place that can accelerate private capital to support the government energy transition strategy. Absolutely. I mean, legislation and the enabling environment matters a lot because, like you rightly said, we need the power, we need to unlock private sector financing for this. So to now move to impact investing, I mean, the emergence of impact investing has created that appetite as well for non-financial returns, beyond financial returns, but of course, you know, I mean, it has come with its own challenges from the supply side, from the demand side to the intermediation. Like you said, policy as well, kind of incentives for investors to actually look beyond the financials. So would you say there has been increased awareness on impact? And from your own uh, experience, what are the drawbacks and what can be done to further deepen you know, and strengthen um, impact investing in Nigeria, which would help a lot to ensure we have that smooth transition. Thank you. So impact investing, I think it's probably very well understood theoretically. And I think in concept, it's very well understood by most, I guess for most that I interact with, it's the how. I, I think in terms of unscaling, that's where there's a challenge. So, you know, you have different private foundations and trusts that provide donations. Uh, uh, and so these are already happening. For these institutions, they are playing their own role in providing 
impact investment. The question really is how scalable can this really be and how sustainable or how much your broader impact can this have in, in being able to address a broader macro constraint in the larger population. And innovation will have a very important role to play in, in this, but, but importantly is when we look at data and statistics, you would probably begin to find that private giving is actually more than public giving. If you look at some data, I think personal giving, even though it's very fragmented, I think in the US it was estimated at some point that it was quite about $270 billion per annum, but not aligned with SDGs. Right. And so we have in Nigeria, you would see, I don't know what the figure is because we don't have that figure, but there's a lot of personal giving that is highly fragmented, not aligned with SDGs. And there's the question around what kind of structure or, or financing model or what approach would you take to begin to these monies and then blend them in a way that can be more sustainable? Because you find that a lot of times, the old ways that the donors, especially the, if you look at overseas, official development assistance and grants that have come in, needs to transition from just purely funding programs and projects to actually finance. And it's not just at that level. I think for most of these sort of project type donations or, or grants have not proven to be a sustainable means for having impact. And so we need to look at financial mechanisms that can leverage these funds and aggregate them in a way that they can actually be linked to more sustainable outcomes in terms of creating jobs and supporting innovation that can improve accessibility, affordability for underserved, but ultimately creating for those that are accessing this infrastructure or these um, essential services that they can actually improve on their own livelihood and be self-sustainable. And I think it's really now how you link what you call innovation that creates new markets and that creating new markets means it's creating um, jobs it's creating access for those who didn't have access to and enabling them to move up the ladder and improve their livelihoods in a sustainable way and mm. this is a really open question because if the way in which impact or money or private giving is, is isolated from linking it to sustainable outcomes and the mechanism through which this could be reorganized is one of the, I think, the potential path to being able to transition or change the, the, the way the market currently is. But this maybe will need to start, in my opinion, as a few impact investors coming together to say, okay, we will pool our capital, we will leverage it by working alongside commercial funding, we will target mm -hmm. innovation and target certain type of you know activities that we want to fund. We will provide demonstration effects, i.e. we would sort of publish and demonstrate to the market that this way of funding is a more sustainable means of leveraging our donations and investment so that others can follow and ultimately we can begin to see more allocation of impact investment that is linked with SDGs but also linked to commercial outcomes that create sustainability. So that is not what is happening. It is, and, and so we, we keep having maybe the same conversation most of the time because the capital is isolated, it behaves in a fragmented way and mm. it's not very coordinated and aligned.
And, and I think this is not just a Nigerian problem, but it's a global challenge as well. It's very important and a very strong point you're making there. I mean, we're in the last decade of achieving the SDGs, and I totally agree with you. The funding can be mobilized to achieve high impact as opposed to everyone just doing um, his own thing. So I would like to allow you give a closing remark or closing statement on any advice you have. So this is your blanket closing. So any parting words okay. you have an advice to give as a closing, what will it be? Thank you. So I think we have had very productive discussion around sustainability, SDG, looking at transition, energy transition and climate change and how best to what are the mechanisms and, and what approaches should, should be taken to achieve substantial impact. I think we need to see an increased role that private sector has to play. And, and in all of this, we need to to recognize that, you know, this being able to connect all of these seemingly fragmented activities into one whole strategy or philosophy towards a, a bigger outcome would require a lot of thinking around how best to, to use innovation in both not just in financial instruments, but innovation in creating essential sort of providing products or services that allow for the underserved and unserved to access otherwise what they are struggling um, to have access to. And how can that type of innovation be identified and structured properly and financed to scale. This to me is one of the open questions and, and even within the context of infrastructure, we have to look at it within the context of the, the economy in itself. So for less developed economies and countries that have high poverty rates, the definition of infrastructure can be slightly different from the definition of infrastructure in the more developed economy. So while there, there are big infrastructure projects that presumably assume to have significant impact, in countries that have high poverty rates, it can be a different type of infrastructure that can actually solve the poverty problem. So I think with that type of lens, um, we begin to open up our minds as to how do we allocate, blend capital, identify infrastructure that is innovative and creating value, um, value in the sense that infrastructure either stores or distributes value, whether it's a road, whether it's a water utility, there's an underlying value, but that value is willingness and ability to pay ultimately. And that is really where the poverty problem creates a challenge. And this is where we need to be able to draw on risk capital, impact capital that will help to bridge that gap and allow for more sustainable financing, more like a viability gap finance. But we need to see more of that type of capital work with local institutions um, that are also structured in a manner that they are consider transparent enough because one of the challenges we've had is that the lack of transparency in reporting impact is also a constraint. So that obviously means that this needs to be incorporated into local entities that are willing to act as intermediaries. I think there's a lot of hope, especially when we see the discussions that are being had and the commitments being given. We're hoping that over the next few months, years with COP26, we should see more active intermediation taking place Market origination and structuring of projects. So the outlook remains optimistic, but it's going to be heavily dependent on strategic partnerships, innovation, and creativity in capital allocation. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chinua, for joining us today. Besides Claire, you being an expert on this, you definitely are an enthusiast and it was a pleasure having you speak on this very important issue. So we look forward to having you back to discuss further and learn more from the invaluable insights you provide. Thank you so much and have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you.